So our reading is taken from John uh, chapter 20, verses 1 to 9. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. They saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. This is the word of the Lord. There are many more runners around in these lockdown days. I'm sure you've noticed it if you've been out and about on the common. I've always felt as a runner that exercise should be private grief, so I'm finding it quite challenging. Why? Because it's hard not to get competitive with other runners. It's hard not to feel discouraged when people overtake you, particularly if they're older and look even more unfit than you think you are. And it's hard not to feel encouraged when you overtake others. Unfortunately, yesterday my score was 2-1, not in my favour. Why do I mention competitive running? Because there's some going on in our story this morning. Mary had gone in the early morning to find the stone of the tomb rolled away. Anxious, wondering what on earth that what on earth has happened to Jesus's body, she runs back to where Peter and John are staying. Peter and John set out together, but John records for all eternity, as though he were Strava or a Garmin user, that he gets there first, that he outran Peter. Competitive running. I'm sure he's thinking all these years later, still hold the record for dash to the tomb. John gets there and looks in. Peter arrives, probably puffing a bit, and goes past John into the tomb. All of their first thoughts are, oh no, what's happened now? All of their thoughts are of further indignity. None of them think at the moment of victory. None of them think that. Peter goes in and, they, and, they, and then John follows him and they see an ordered scene. It doesn't look like the scene of a grave robbery. It doesn't look like people have burst in uh, and ransacked the tomb. The linen is put on one side. The head covering is folded up by itself. It doesn't look like the scene of a robbery. It looks like a curiously ordered scene. But still they don't jump to the conclusion that Jesus was raised. None of them expected that. Instead, they go away wondering what had happened. John gets a bit further than Peter. He thinks he has an inkling of what might have happened. But they go away wondering what had happened. And notice that agitation. None of them wait for Mary to get back. 
They are so traumatized and anxious about what the authorities might do to them that they leave as soon as they've seen what they can see. So why was the tomb empty? Some people think it was because the authorities stole the body. But the authorities have been determined for all of this to be done before the Sabbath. They were so scrupulous about that. There's no way they would have done anything on the Sabbath, and this is early morning. And if they did steal the body, why didn't they produce it and just show that all of the, and rubbish all of the rumours that Jesus was raised from the dead? Some people think the disciples stole the body. But they're grieving and traumatised. If any of you have ever lost someone, you know in the immediate aftermath it's hard to plan a meal, let alone a massive conspiracy. They were grieving, they were traumatised, they were broken. Those are not conducive to any sort of planning at all. And they gained nothing from this story. They all went on to be martyred in one way or another over the next 30 or so years. And not martyred in the aggressive, violent way we sometimes see today with people uh, expressing their anger with the world by taking other people with them. But martyred by refusing to deny this story. Martyred by refusing to deny that Jesus was raised from the dead and refusing therefore to say that Caesar was Lord. Been very easy to deny it, very easy to step out of that place of imprisonment and threat, but none of them chose to do so because they knew that this story was true. Some people say, well, was Jesus really dead then? Well, we know that he'd suffered four major wounds through each of his wrists and through both of his legs, plus the spear thrust that the soldiers did to ensure that he was really dead because they had an incentive. If they let a condemned man escape, they were uh, uh, liable for the death penalty themselves. That's what you call an incentive. They did what you or I would have done, they checked. So we know that he had suffered five major wounds, plus the scourging, plus the crown of thorns, an inch long on his head. So some people think that he could have survived all that and recovered in the cool of the tomb, but it's just a tomb, it's not a modern ICU. And the spear thrust with the flow of blood and water is what medical science knows is the separation of clot and serum that happens in the blood soon after death. So he's undoubtedly dead. The authorities didn't steal the body. The disciples didn't steal the body. They had no expectation. All of their first thoughts are of indignity, not victory. They have to be persuaded by Jesus appearing to them in their midst, by Jesus uh, bringing forgiveness and peace to them, by over and over again doing things like just cooking a barbecue with them by the side of the Sea of Galilee. It takes time and touching his healed wounds to bring the whole reality of this story uh, uh, right home to their hearts. What they do gain though is unconquerable hope. Unconquerable hope that helps them to face death when they faced it in martyrdom. Unconquerable hope that death has been defeated. Unconquerable hope that all of our hurts and wrongs and the hurts and the wrongs of the whole world have been dealt with justly and we have been passed over by Christ our Passover Lamb. And it's that unconquerable hope that I think we really need to stand in today. 
the theme of our whole service is why we have hope. And we have hope because not because the tomb is empty, but because Jesus was raised from the dead and he is alive. He is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. And he is with us today. You might not know that hope at the moment. If you want to know it, all you need to do is say sorry, thank you and please. Sorry for the way that you've lived your life. Sorry for the way that you've ignored uh, Christ's lordship over your life in all kinds of ways. And then just say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you for allowing me to know you. Thank you for breathing your spirit into me. And please, please come into my life and reign with me forever. Give me that unconquerable hope. It's as simple as that. Why we have hope. We have hope because of the cross and because of the resurrection. We have hope because of his presence with us today. We have hope because he gives us comfort and strength and leads us through the presence of his Holy Spirit. And all we need to do is ask for that and say sorry, thank you and please. Please come into our lives, risen Lord Jesus, now and always. And may we live in that unconquerable hope. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Know that truth. Invite the Holy Spirit's presence into your life right now. If you've not done that before, simply say sorry, thank you and please. And may we live in the uncomparable hope that the risen Lord Jesus gives us. Thanks for listening.